This is the Digital Orthopedics Podcast, bringing you insights shared from the stage at DOCSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference hosted by the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of California, San Francisco. Find out more about our conference and join our community by visiting docsf.health, docsf.health. Welcome to the DocSF Podcast. My name is Dr. Stefan Obini, the founder and chair of the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco, otherwise known as DocSF. I am your host for this podcast series. And on our last podcast, we heard from Dr. Scott Hammond, a neurosurgeon with extraordinary experience in system biology and robotics, and Dr. Manish Katari, the president of the Stanford Research Institute, who introduced us to his work in exoskeletons. Our moderator, Dr. Razu Shrestha, the Chief Strategy Officer at Atrium Health led the discussion that followed. Having set the stage for what robots are and what they can do for us in healthcare, we went into breakout sessions. Now we're going to jump in to one of those rooms where UCSF's Dr. Einar Sawyer moderated a session with Atheon, a robotic company from Pittsburgh that has deployed hundreds of automated robots called TUGS that roam hospitals all over the U.S., transporting everything from food trays to medications around hospitals in a completely automated fashion. I was so taken aback when I first ran into one of these devices making its way around the hospital and ordering its own elevators that I actually took a video of it and shipped it off to a bunch of friends. Let's hear now from the stage at DocSF 2019, where Dr. Sawyer introduces the team from Atheon and her panel of experts. Welcome to the session on presentation of a uh, case study with Athon, a robotics company from Pittsburgh that we're going to learn about in a deep dive fashion from company representative themselves, but we'll also be talking from a use case side with UCSF representation. And just to quickly announce, the UCSF director for our TUGS that is from this company, was unable to make it due to a family emergency. However, there are several of us who interface with the tugs, and we can speak to some of the issues around that. What I'd like to do to start out, first of all, thank you for coming to this panel session, and you will have a role in helping us do a deeper dive on the company experience from Athon. And we're going to be looking at this from the application side, the ROI side, the business development side, and also what are the challenges of the academic industry interfaces. So please be thinking as we're doing this what you might want to know more from Athon about. And then we also have an expert panel here. Once in a while, I'll refer to my phone. I'm not looking at Instagram. I'm actually looking at my notes. So I just want to clarify that. Um, but we have an expert panel here from different disciplines. So Aaron Sheedy, Hassan Sharhan, Kristen Miranda, Richard Capra. We've switched it up a little bit uh, Mark Goldstein's not on this panel, but we have Lindsay who's come to join us, Lindsay Deneau. So they're each going to do their own introductions, and I'm going to take this moment for that to happen. I'll start off by saying my name is Einor Sawyer. I'm faculty in the orthopedic department at UCSF. I direct the skeletal health service, but most of my work is now in health technology, and I've now become the chief health innovation officer for the Translational Research Institute in Space Health, which is a NASA program. So we have a, a lot of variety in our department, but as you can tell from this program, we're also very, very interested in pushing the ball forward in terms of applying innovation to transform healthcare as we deliver it. So I'll turn to my right, and we'll start with one-line introductions across the deck here. 
Good morning. Uh, thank you for attending. I am Peter Seif. I am from the company uh, uh, about which the case study focuses on, uh, at least from a product perspective, which is called Athon. We're a uh, autonomous robot company out of Pittsburgh, and I have been uh, in the robotics business, and particularly in the uh, robotics business in the healthcare field, for over 25 years. Glad to be here. Uh, Richard Capra, I'm the Chief Administrative Officer for the Department of Orthopedic Surgery here at UCSF. Also, I am the President of the Academic Orthopedic Consortium, a consortium of 80 academic leaders across the United States, uh, and we get together and share data and uh, look at pitfalls and opportunities to work together. I'm Hassan Sirhan. I'm a Distinguished Fellow at Debussy and the Spine J&J. I am also uh, an adjunct faculty at the University of Toledo, and that's uh, the connection with UCSF through the CDMI that we created five years ago. At, uh, I'm going to make a, a, a commercial pitch here for the CDMI. I see Desba there. It's uh, the uh, Center for Disruptive Musculoskeletal Innovation, where small companies and large companies could be members and for almost every dollar they pay, we are able to raise between three and seven dollars, depending on the chairman of that, to fund research that is done through UCSF or University of Toledo. So, uh, could not help it. I had the mic. <laughs> Good morning. My name is Lindsay Denault, and I'm the director of commercialization for Atrium Health. We are the second largest public not-for-profit health system with 44 hospitals across North South Carolina and now part of Georgia. And I lead commercialization for the system, which essentially involves partnering with innovation, research, and our investment fund um, on either tech in or tech out. So inventions that we create within the system or partnering with startups to help enable um, us to achieve our strategic goals. Great. And I'm Aaron Sheedy, uh, the CEO of Zelf. We're a startup that was founded and, and created and spun out of Providence. Uh, we're deployed uh, there and at, uh, at UPMC and a few other health systems. It's a platform that lets physicians uh, prescribe digital content apps and services for patients right out of their charting interface um, to help patients and clinicians get patients recovery information and get data on how the patient's doing. So I'm probably here more on the startup side since I don't really have a healthcare background at all. So it's pretty fantastic to be sitting with all of you, very esteemed and uh, well-versed people. Well, thank you to the panelists. First of all, it's been uh, really, really important that we had a multidisciplinary mix here, and we certainly have achieved that. I'd like to go ahead and have Peter start with giving us an introduction to Athon. Um, he has a presentation to give, and we'll talk from our, our standpoint as a user, even though we're just one of the users for Athon, but we have some deep experience with these robots. And they're not the sexy-looking uh, humanoid-type robots, but they do have a tremendous role to play in our institution, and you'll hear about that. Um, most people think that they're large toasters rolling around the hospital, but you'll understand better what a critical role they're playing now in the infrastructure of us delivering optimal health care. So, Peter, would you like to go ahead and start? I would be glad to. So, a little bit on Athon. Uh, I, I know in terms of the introductions that were given uh, this morning and by several of the others on the panel, a lot of, there's a lot of focus on startups and venture-backed companies, and we were indeed one of those as well. We were founded in 2004, but fortunate enough uh, last year to have been acquired uh, by a company called ST Engineering. So uh, we were uh, you know, always pursuing the exit, and uh, we, got our, we got our exit last year. And so 
it's been recent, so we might have to check back with me in a year to see if it was really, really what we were hoping for. Uh, but so far, it's been great. Uh, we are based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which I'm sure many of you know is sort of a home of uh, many of the robotics innovations, particularly around uh, autonomy, in, in at least in, in the U.S. And we primarily, up and through the acquisition, we were primarily in North America, uh, but through the acquisition, we now have a fair amount of reach in Europe, and now particularly in Asia, ST Engineering is actually a company based in, in Singapore. So we, uh, we, we did have uh, installations in China and Japan and Australia before the acquisition, but now there's a lot more effort and resources going into, into the Asian market. I'll also mention, in terms of markets, um, we obviously are going to focus on healthcare here today, uh, but just in case it's of interest to anyone and there is some crossover, we do operate also in hotel markets. Um, where we do some of the very same things. Um, and we also do a lot of industrial robotics as well. So just leave that out there. So what do we do? Maybe what we do, maybe it doesn't look sexy. <laughs> maybe it isn't sexy. But it certainly is a little bit different than I think some of the other robots that were presented. So it's fair to make a, a contrast or, and a comparison. Our robots tend to not be the type of robots that are, are there for individual patient impact where we're not, you know, assisting surgeons during surgery. And it's not really, quote unquote, a clinical robot. It's not supporting that patient. But what it really is, is supporting the organization that's supporting the patient, right? So when you think about a hospital, very similar to a hotel, they're, they're in many cases, very large cities, right? They, they, they house and support people for, for some period of time where they need to be fed. Uh, garbage needs to go out. Linens need to come in clean and out dirty. Dirty trays need to go out. There's a lot of logistics movement. And as our hospitals, particularly in the U.S., get bigger and bigger in terms of square footage and footprint because of some of the, the architectural uh, uh, decisions that we're making, uh, there's a lot of pressure on staffing and stocking those hospitals to produce optimal outcomes. How do we get our staff to walk miles and miles a day? And we'll actually go over some statistics. I think most people sort of underestimate the amount of miles and the number of hours uh, that are uh, performed by staff on pushing carts and waiting for elevators, areas that we probably feel are non-value-added. They're necessary, but non-value-added, and certainly humans can be used in different ways uh, uh, than robots. So what we really do is we, we, we build these autonomous robots, and, and by autonomous, we really mean truly autonomous robots. These are robots that don't require any tracks, wires, beacons. We don't use GPS or Wi-Fi to navigate through an indoor facility. And what that really means is it enables us to work in all sorts of facilities, new, old, they don't need to be built specifically for uh, using, using the robots. And in addition, very important, they can be used in and around people. So uh, the common word in the robotics field is cohabitate. We can cohabitate with people very safely. And more importantly, because we also work in the industrial field, we can cohabitate in what we also call unstructured environments. An unstructured environment, in, in the case of a hospital, really means, again, we don't have any delineation for where the robot goes and where people go. And we can also work in and around people People that are untrained. Another, in many cases, have never seen the robot before. You said they see they look like toasters coming down or large boxes. I can't disagree. I think in some cases they do. And we'll show you some, some solutions for fixing that as well, uh, making them a little bit more fun. But we need to be able to build robots that 
can navigate in environments where we know that we will be around people who have never seen them before. You can make the argument that working in an industrial setting is actually fairly easy because you can put a line on the floor and you could say the robots work on that side, the people work on this side, and if you cross that line, you're fired, right? Um, and you can sort of enforce that at some level. In a hospital, I'm sure all of you will agree, <laughs> you can't do that because first of all, you don't even get to tell the people that that's the consequence of crossing the line. So we need to be able to operate in all sorts of situations, and that's what we do. We design truly autonomous robots robots that don't force you to accommodate the architecture uh, to use the robots. The robots actually adapt to the architecture. So no special uh, infrastructure is needed, um, and you do not need to think about separating the humans from the robots. And that allows us to operate in all sorts of environments and do all sorts of tasks that you may not have thought about doing before. So a picture is worth a thousand words, and uh, and I, I was made aware of that, and I, I, and I agree. So if we could play the video, I'll, I'll narrate the video, but you'll get an idea of what these look like. And one of the other really nice features about our design is that they have a very flexible cargo or payload capacity. So in other words, uh, you'll see this one happens to be uh, a pharmacy and or a, a lab type of uh, robot. You'll see as it goes by, you'll see individual drawers. Those can all be locked individually. Here you'll see how they're accessed through a pin code and biometric uh, thumbprint. You can also use a card reader if that's what your hospital uses. In this particular case, because we are delivering medications, they're individually tracked for chain of custody. So one of the challenges of using autonomous robots in these environments is that the deliveries are unattended, so they need to be secured. You might have made these types of deliveries in the past in an open cart, right? Just with a bunch of bins, maybe a cover on top of it. Now you need to think about how do you lock it, and how do you secure it, and how do you know who received it on the other end, and whether it was received on the other end. So in addition to the autonomy that's important, sort of the essential part of the robot, we need to build a whole product around that set of features to allow the hospitals to be able to take advantage of delivering these types of products where they want a chain of custody. So upcoming in the video, I think in the next... Uh, uh, scene, you'll see some other varieties of, uh, it's actually the same robot, but you'll see some other varieties of carts. So this particular robot, not only um, does it adapt to the environment, but it adapts to the type of cart that the hospital or the customer uses. So you don't need to change your cart. So here you'll see some items from sterile processing. Um, I can't remember if those are Hupfer carts. I know that those are the ones UCSF use, though. Uh, you'll see them coming down the hallway here. These are standard uh, metro linen uh, style carts or, or, or wire rack carts. Those are fairly common in all hospitals. And again, you just use the same carts that you use uh, today. You see there's delivering clean linen. This is a very standard blown plastic trash cart that's used for trash recycling um, and sometimes uh, medical waste. At UCSF, they use a different medical waste cart, and you'll see that coming up. But as you can see, there's nothing on the floor. These operate in the same environment that you'd expect your visitors, guests, patients, doctors, and everybody else to be in. This is a, uh, a Dynex or a lakeside cart, uh, again, typically used for food service, as you can see there. It's the same robot, not necessarily the same individual robot, but the same model robot in each case that's making each of these deliveries. And I'll actually address that uh, as part of the business case and why that's an important uh, uh, consideration in building a, a good ROI. You can also see, again, because of the design of this robot um, and the autonomy, we can actually operate in very tight spaces. So uh, we can come right into the department. Um, I think Dr. Beanie maybe mentioned um, in part of his presentation the last mile. That's something we really talk about a lot with our robots is we can go the last mile. So we don't require the, the staff to come to the robot because we think that's a waste of the time. We want to come to the staff. So we can actually operate in very, very tight spaces. Anywhere where you were able to get the cart that you were using before, you can use with our robot. 
So we sometimes call it going to the point of care or to the work where the work is being done. If you're familiar with some of the older style robots, I'll call them less autonomous robots that had been used in some hospitals in the past, they would stop short at a typically called a marshalling area. This is the uh, medical waste cart, by the way. And then the staff would have to come to the robot to take the cart off of the robot and bring it the last mile, which again, decreases the efficiency uh, and the flow within the organization. So because we made these small, so the, the robot itself is only 18 inches wide. It can go through all doorways. It can ride all elevators. It can access all areas of the hospital. So you don't need to have it stop short at all. So again, the, what we normally will tell people is if you could get the cart there that you were using before, you can use the robot to get the cart there as well. So you don't have to make any compromises. So what is the problem we set out to solve? I would call it a challenge. I'm not sure if it was a problem. But when the new Mission Bay campus was being built, one of, one of the missions of the Mission Bay campus was they wanted to automatically move everything. And really behind that was how do we create a lean and efficient process in such a big campus? It's three football fields long, and it was going to cause uh, the staff to have to walk lots and lots of extra miles. And nobody wanted to add staff that where, where, where there wasn't a lot of value added. So when you looked at the, we did an engineering study, um, actually, Athon didn't perform it. The, uh, I, I believe it was the architect and, and an engineering firm who did it, and we can talk about that a little bit more later. There was uh, an estimated 60,000 non-value hours uh, spent annually delivering cart-based supplies. So that's a lot. People probably don't normally think about that. It's not really the essence of the hospital. The hospital's about the patients and, and clinical care, but it's really all supported by these logistics. And people notice when things don't go right, right? They just don't necessarily know what it takes to make it go right. So the types of things that don't go right are waiting times, right? Uh, we, we routinely talk to nurses and other clinicians and they're waiting too long for supplies to be delivered. Um, that tends to affect patient and employee satisfaction. It also tends to have this effect, and we'll talk a little bit about this, on the inefficient use of clinical resources. So we know everybody that works in the hospital cares about the patients and they care about providing the best care. So when there is waiting time, what do they do? They make it their job to complete the delivery. So they'll actually take, you know, leave the unit and go do something that they didn't feel was getting done uh, before. And obviously that's a very, very efficient way uh, to handle things. So now you're taking non-value added labor that you're paying some, you know, lower amount for and basically double or tripling the amount of money that you're paying to get that task done. And again, it's a non-value added task. But we'll talk about in each of these categories, we've, we've documented results uh, across some different uh, customers that we'll present to you in, in some of the upcoming slides. I thought I'd put this here just to kind of give you an indication. This is, um, I know it actually looks a little small up here, probably a little small up on even on the bigger screen. Okay, I can give you an idea uh, that this is not a unique UCSF problem. We see this at a typical 200-bed hospital. There are many, many hundreds of miles per day uh, spent stocking and removing waste uh, from the facilities all around pushing carts and waiting for elevators. And sometimes if you express the metric in, in some other forms like pounds, um, so I, again, I'm not sure if you can see that where you are, but it's amazing the amount and the volume of materials that come in and out of a hospital every day. And again, most of us don't ever even see it. You know, it comes in on the loading dock and somehow magically shows up somewhere or doesn't show up somewhere. And that's when we know <laughs> that it didn't happen. So what did we do? How did we try to lean out this process? So I can talk more about the, the actual process uh, maybe in the Q&A session, but ultimately the result of it was to install 27 autonomous mobile robots at the UCSF uh, Mission Bay campus. You can see how they break out approximately by departments. So we did this in, in, uh, in six departments, as you can see, hospitality, which, which includes all the, the trash and the waste materials, which is the typical you know, supplies, 
sterile processing, which you saw in the video, pathology. I think you, in the in the video you saw some specimens coming in into the lab. We do food and dirty uh, trays, and we also do medications, which you also saw highlighted. If you actually do the math on this, one of the interesting things you'll see is that that doesn't add up to 27. It adds up to way more than 27. And that's actually intentional. I don't know if it's intentional. It's it's, it's, it's actually what happens in the hospital because what, what we find, and I'll show you on, I think it's this next slide, as part of the analysis to determine how many tugs we needed um, based on the other constraints that we were, we were given by the hospital, and I'll talk about those as well, this is how it graphs out over the course of the day. So as you would imagine, you see a peaks towards the middle shift of, of the day. Uh, but you can also see that there's activity on, on both tails. And some of that is intentional. We try to smooth that curve out so that we can get the maximum utilization out of every tug, right? So those tugs are there. And for whatever the price is of the tug, they're there at your service for 24 hours a day. So you don't want to jam all the work into one eight-hour shift, right? And then have them sitting around doing nothing for 16 hours. So one of the lessons that we learned, not only at UCSF, but other campuses, and I'll talk about it a little bit more completely at the end is how do we time shift some of the work so that we can actually make better utilization of the tugs? And there's actually some great secondary benefits of, of doing some, some time shifting as well. But back to the point I was going to make on uh, from the prior slide is that not all of the applications are busy at the same time of day. So for instance, food services tends to be really busy around mealtimes, as you would expect. So there's usually a two-hour window around breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then the tugs that are required to do the food service can actually be sent off to do another task. So in between lunch and dinner, maybe they're delivering clean linens. Maybe they're picking up garbage. That may not be the best combination, but but we leave that those decisions uh, up to you. But in other words, when you look at the chart that I showed on the previous slide, and you add those up, it would add up to more than 27 because at certain peak times of day, this is the number of tugs that are servicing those departments. And then when those peaks go away, they actually are, are reassigned to go do another task. Because as we mentioned during the video, the task of the tug is really defined by the cart that it has on it, and the cart is exchangeable. So a cart can go from being a food cart to an SBD cart to a linen cart just by changing, by changing the cart. So I know everybody wants to always talk about the results, and it, it's hard to ignore the, the labor part of this. That's sort of the, the ante, if you will. So I've been doing robots for a long time. Um, everybody equates robots and labor, so it's hard to get away from, but it's, it's hardly the only benefit that you get, get out of this. But let's, let's address it, because I know everybody likes to do that. So the, the AMRs that we installed at UCSF actually make 176,000 deliveries per year. Um, that accounts for 30,000 miles or 70,000 hours of, of time. I would caution everyone, those come right from our, our reports, an hour of robot time, an hour of people time are not always equivalent. So we, we can talk about that in more detail if that's a topic that fascinates you. But depending on the type of delivery, sometimes it is a one-to-one -one ratio. Sometimes it's it, the robot can do more in an hour than a person. Sometimes it can do less in an hour than a person. And we can, we can get into that. But I just want to caution you. It's a good approximation for the amount of, of, of labor you're saving, but it's not a perfect approximation. We do have a better approximation based on the data that we, we did get from UCSF. And there was $2.4 million per year in labor costs saved or redeployed redeployed to higher value work. And we oftentimes refer to that as high-tech, high-touch. We understand as a company, I think everybody in the room understands that robots can't do everything that people do. So we have people that are pushing carts. We don't think that's value-added work. We'd rather those people, if, if the hospital chooses to do something that's patient-facing. And we actually have some of the results, um, maybe on the next slide, that shows some of those effects. So it's easy to reduce the labor. That's one choice. And we always leave that up to the 
hospital. The other choice is, can I take that savings of that person that's not pushing a cart and waiting for an elevator, and can I reinvest it in a different area of the hospital where I can make a real difference? Wait times. This is, again, this is one of the things that usually has executives at the hospitals calling us in. They get complaints from nursing staff and other clinical staff. The delivery times that they need are not being met. Um, so one of the provisions in terms of looking at the robotic system here was not only did we want to deliver all of the, the, the transactions from all the departments on the previous slide, but we had to make sure that all the deliveries were in 15 minutes or less. And that's when you see that graph. That's, that's one of the constraints that we use in the graph to solve for the equation. So, for instance, we, we probably could have done all the deliveries that are necessary uh, with a 20 or 25-minute time frame and used fewer tugs. Right? But the, the, one of the constraints was it needs to be in, in a maximum of 15 minutes, and that starts to drive the number of, of tugs up, as you can imagine. So it's an equation, and, and it's a if-then uh, that we allow uh, our customers to experiment with. Uh, so you can see what is the real cost from going from a 25-minute delivery to a 15-minute delivery. So in this case, it was uh, we wanted to reduce the max delivery time to 15 minutes. One of the things that is measured very, very uh, uh, explicitly, and if uh, Dan were here, he could talk about this a lot more, the UCSF uh, Mission Bay Campus uses a room service model. If you're not familiar with a room service model for food service, basically what it means is that the patients have a wider variety of choice in what they're ordering and a wider variety of choice of when they order it. And it's the when they order it that really drives the mechanics of the tug. So I don't know if it's fair to say most hospitals, but it probably is fair to say most hospitals don't use a room service concept. And that partially that's because it's expensive to staff a, a room service concept. And the reason is if you're using a bulk food delivery system, you prepare all the food, everybody gets basically the same thing. You prepare it all at the same time. You put it all in the cart and you send it up. In the room service model, what happens is you have a much bigger distribution of, of food orders. It happens over a much broader amount of time because people are able to order when they, when, I'll say when they feel like it, maybe it's when they're awake, when they feel better, when they feel like they can digest the food, or maybe when the doctor changes the order. But it changes the, the cycle rate of when the orders come in, so it's unpredictable. And because we also have to work with a delivery time frame, and this is the one that came out of UCSF, it has to be 45 minutes from the time it was ordered. Now, remember, that doesn't contradict the first bullet, which is the delivery time is 15 minutes. We have 15 minutes to deliver it. They still have to prepare it, right? Plate it, cook it, all that kind of stuff. That, that takes the, I'll say, the first half hour, and then there's a 15-minute delivery uh, buffer that we have. But by giving people choice over when they order, Again, we have a much broader distribution, but also by putting the constraint on that it has to be done within a certain amount of time, that means that oftentimes we're, we're delivering in a somewhat inefficient way. We have to deliver however many orders have been placed. We can't wait to accumulate 30 orders to fill up the cart and then send it. So typically what the hospitals do in this case is that the first tray that goes in the cart sets off the timer, and 10 minutes later, everything that's in that cart has to go, whether it's one tray, 10 trays, or 30 trays. And what that means, naturally, as I'm sure you've all already figured out, is you have to make many, many, many more deliveries to support a room service model. So it's really something that's uh, challenging to do, and it's a perfect solution for something uh, like the tugs. And this is the, the last bullet point under wait times also came out of uh, the UCSF meal study, which is that we had on-time delivery consistently above 95% of the service standards. So that just really goes to the, the reliability and dependability of the tugs as opposed to using people. There are some other technical and integration uh, reasons why we're able to have consistent deliveries, which I'd be glad to talk to maybe, maybe in the Q&A session. 
clinical time allocation. Uh, this is something that was measured at Washington Hospital Center. There's there's uh, footnotes on the bottom. They specifically deployed a, a pharmacy tug program. And one of the things they were trying to uh, solve for was nurse overtime that was the result of having to handle missing medications. And with the tug, and I'll talk more specifically about missing medications in a second, uh, they were able to, to reduce the, the uh, nurse overtime by 20 minutes related to just that issue alone. Patient satisfaction. Again, these are things that I think are sometimes often overlooked when we overfocus on, on the labor component, but by reducing waiting times, right, by being able to implement systems like, like food service that might not be possible without robots, there are certain other goals that we're able to uh, uh, measure and, and provide good success results for. Um, so in this case, and, and this one did, this one came out of uh, uh, Washington Hospital Center also, we had a 16-point uh, increase in patient satisfaction related to nursing questions. And this, again, goes to the high high touch issue. So now that we don't have nurses running off of the unit looking for things or wondering why the meals aren't there or where the medications are, they're able to spend more time uh, with the patients. And those, uh, that impact showed up directly in the uh, Prescani surveys. On the food topic, there were a 28-point uh, uh, increase related to food quality questions. Um, again, in fairness, I have a little note there that I know is really hard to see from here, so maybe it's hard to see there as well. Um, some of that is attributable to the change itself to the room service model, right? So that's not all because of the tug, but I think it's fair to say the tug enables that model from a financial perspective. And then uh, scores increased by 10 points related to food staff courtesy questions. Again, this is uh, that high-tech, high-touch. Instead of the, 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 the food hostesses running back and forth and waiting for the elevator, they're now spending time in front of the patient, asking that they would like an extra cup of coffee or, you know, if, you know what, whatever else their, their desires are, they can take care of that. I won't dwell on each of these. You guys probably already read it while I was I was talking, but there's there's uh, similar uh, improvements in employee satisfaction. Sometimes I, people worry about robots replacing some of these jobs. I think you'll find if you talk to some of these folks, nobody really enjoys pushing the carts that much. It's not it's not a fun job, and it's not necessarily a rewarding job. And in fact, the folks that have been redeployed prefer being part of the care team and interacting with the patients and other staff more. On uh, the learnings, I'll go over these uh, just real quickly. Global optimization. Um, again, this is if the concept of sharing tugs, but it does require some push from the top. Uh, most hospitals, when we first show up, definitely work in silos, and it's hard to share resources sometimes or to think about how I might shift the time of a process so that materials can unload a truck, and then we can also handle linen with the same set of tugs. Think about the whole process. Um, when things are unattended, as I mentioned earlier, um, you have to think about who's going to be on each end of the delivery. So there's some uh, aspects of that. Time shifting, we talked about that. One area is how you, one, one advantage is in spreading out the time is using fewer tugs. The other is, and frankly, I haven't seen an, a, a hospital that doesn't have elevator issues, but if you can use your tugs at night to move linen and trash, you solve kill two birds with one stone, essentially, right? Yeah, you you, move, you put took all that pressure on the elevator and moved over to the night. And again, I'll, I'll just skip the rest there because I know you want to get to questions, but I'll also say, don't forget to have fun. So to get to the sexy comment from the beginning, we do have some customers who have done some different things with their tugs. The left is uh, an example from a hotel. You can see it kind of looks like a butler and you can see uh, the a lot of people like to make them anthropomorphic type of robots. Uh, like you mentioned, Ainor right there is Cogswell. Uh, but certainly we've had some customers who've done some pretty creative things. So anyway... I talked fast. Now Peter, I thank you very much. Uh, we'll give a big hand for everyone at the very end, but I want to quickly get out of the way so that our panelists can ask you some questions. I have some of my own, but I'm very curious as to the vantage points that you're going to come at this with. It can range from technical to business to just human interaction. Mm. So would you like to go first? Yeah, please. Thank you. 
Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, I get a chance to actually uh, work at the same area where these are going up and down the hall, and it was quite exciting to see the first one. I didn't know what it was. And uh, I've even uh, put my feet out occasionally to see what would happen if it... (laughs) met my feet and it's still there <laughs> and, and it stopped it, it just stopped and i was waiting for it to say move sucker or something but it, it just waited for me to move it was quite amazing uh one of the spinoffs that really didn't elaborate on but we found when we were doing some work with an implant company we were trying to reduce the number of trays in an or that we found that just by reducing four or five trays per physician for just a couple of physicians reduced 30 tons of equipment moving in and out of the or and spd and it, it really helped the people people. And it was the people that were more impressed with this than the OR staff and that were having to pull all these and move them and put them up on shelves. And so it's the indirect that really um, gets highlighted. And and so I I applaud this to really help with that, that resource utilization problem and back problems and everything that goes along with uh, with that. My, I guess my, my one question is, uh, can you do a one-off with these? I'm, I'm not so sure how they're programmed. Uh, if they're programmed by, they're all set and they all have one route that they run, or can you do a one-off if somebody in radiology wants to send something to somebody up on the third floor? What happens then? Yeah, absolutely. But first, a comment on, on, I'll say, the inventory issues, too, is that we see a lot of impact on reduction of inventory of whatever. Um, a lot of times, it's how much linen is stored in an area. And again, people overlook this. Once you build a, a reliable, dependable delivery system, some of the hoarding goes down, right? So, some of the other types of issues and, and the amount of inventory that needs to be stored on the floor to support the nurses and the other clinical uh, staff really goes down because they know if they need something, and this goes, I'm going to tie it right into your question, if they need something on an ad hoc basis, the tugs can do that as well. So each tug is completely independent of the other, and they all operate off of a global map that is built for the inside of the building. So each tug can be assigned to do uh, the same thing every day, or in the next day, it can be reassigned to do ad hoc deliveries. And as you can see from, well, I'm pointing to the graph that's not there anymore, but there's, there's very few times during the day, and this is done on purpose, where we have all the tugs being used at the same time, which means that there is a, a sub- a portion of the fleet that's available to make ad hoc deliveries so that you can, you know, just deliver a single sheet or, um, you know, an, an OR item or whatever else you need to do. So they're not fixed uh, it, for the long term. They can, they can change their schedules, their routes, and they can go from being, you know, scheduled to ad hoc and back as often as you'd like. Uh, a great job, actually. You targeted a low-paying jobs with um, your tug how could you target high-paying jobs that require, like delivering maybe the meds or, or, or something of a high-paying job, but the rest of it is a low-paying job? Two questions. One, the price of your unit and how many years would it take a hospital like UCSF to pay back uh, the, for the price of the capital equipment as well as the maintenance? The next question, can I replace the pharmacist who, could, who counts the pills and get my, my tug to count the pills? So I mean, uh, can I really uh, assign this tug to uh, take not mundane, uh, you know, tasks and just up the ante a little bit? Sure. Well, no, I think that's a great observation. I think in a lot of cases, the the, the tugs um, and robots in, in some someone in general, you know, I, I don't know who said it, but somebody said robots are really uh, best geared at doing things that are dirty, dull, and dangerous, right? So in some cases, that tends to, to focus on some of the, the lower cost labor. I think you're right. We, we know... Um, 
one of the reasons on the learnings I said put that go big or go home and try to get the global optimization is so that you can share the tugs and therefore get a good ROI. When we approach hospitals, sometimes if we're looking at single departments, if it's just food, sometimes it is hard uh, to get the ROI if you're looking at just that department. Food is is particularly challenging because it tends to have big peaks around mealtime, so you need lots of tugs to do things in a very short amount of time. That, that That's a bad combination. Pharmacy, though, um, lab um, are the two higher paying areas that we see the employees, two higher paying employees that are doing essentially the same type of job that most states, though, they need to be certified to do that job. We're talking about like uh, when you talk about the uh, drug and all yeah. that stuff, there's accountability, there's transfer of, of uh, you know, like this is to this station. That's, that's why you require a human being in the past. And that's why the, the, the prices are up. And I was just asking about, can you uh, get your robot to start doing other tasks yeah. uh, of a high paying job? No, it's again. Um, so, and you had asked about the pharmacy picking uh, the, the pharmacist. <laughs> there actually are robots out there that do that. Actually, that was, that, that was a company I started before this company. Uh, it used to be owned by McKesson, which is here in town. And then it was sold to, to Omnicell. Uh, but, and, and actually UCSF has a, uh, I think one of those at their, their centralized pharmacy. So there are such things. Um, I'm not sure if that's what we're, we're aiming at doing. One of the things that we are looking at in terms of labor is looking at some of the other markets. So some of the things that we do in the hospital, if you take the same exact task or blur your eyes and it's essentially the same task and you do it in a factory or a manufacturing setting, those, those labor uh, rates are, are higher. But I guess what I would focus on, and you asked about this as well, so I'll just quickly mention is, is you ask the ROI or the payback period. So even, even with um, targeting is not the right word, but even with our, our robots being most suitable for for those types of tasks, where that tend to, to have lower paying salaries, we tend to have very good ROIs and very low payback. I believe in the UCSF example was, was about two years. One of the benefits that you alluded to was around work-related injuries. And I know we have challenges, particularly around getting the carts on and off elevators. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the technical aspects of how your system gets on and off an elevator, especially with some of the taller, heavier carts? And then Second question, um, you talked about four, I guess, different case studies that you've had at different health systems. Can you talk about the champion that ended up pushing this through at each place? Was it different or did it end up being a similar person or role at each health system? Yeah, good question. So the elevator is a very important concept. And you're right, a lot of the injuries to people and the building happen at the elevators. <laughs> and uh, this could be equally, oh, people are more important, I, I assume. Um, but yeah, what, what happens in a lot of the elevators, and not to bore everybody, you know, you, you get the gap in between the, the elevator cabin and the floor, and sometimes the wheels get stuck in that, and people have to push or pull from that perspective, and that does tend to cause injuries. I will say, and again, probably not as high a priority entirely, because it doesn't uh, affect people. But a lot of times people push these heavy carts into the elevator doors. And if you're not familiar with elevators, there a lot of the sensors that are used right on the edge of the door are very sensitive. And that'll take an elevator down. And when you already don't have enough elevator throughput in a building, losing an elevator for the day is uh, not only expensive, uh, but can be very challenging for the workflow. So when we use robots, you brought this up, we, we obviously have precision sensors. And so we do not you know, hit the elevator door. That's one thing. The other thing is that even though all, although the, the robots themselves are small, and I made an uh, emphasize that throughout the presentation, they're actually very powerful. The robots um, that are here at UCSF are capable of handling up to a thousand pounds. So we can go over those, those gaps very easily. And in fact, a lot of elevators don't come in level, right? So one, one side is higher than the other. It's not supposed to be like that, uh, but we can handle that as well. 
we did initially when we when we started the company had a big challenge with elevators because there's so many makes and models and so many vintages, right? You go into you can go into a hospital that was built in the 1950s, or you can go into one that was built in 2014 or 2015, and they all have different elevator models. So what we ended up doing um, as a company is we decided to take that task on ourselves and we actually build our own elevator interface controller. And we provide that to the hospital or to the hospital's elevator maintenance company and they install it. So then we have a common interface uh, with all the elevators. But one other aspect that's important about the elevator, since you asked, and I think I alluded to it, but probably didn't close on it in the presentation, is the elevator interface is actually one of the reasons why the tug can, can, can reduce wait times over people. First of all, it's sort of torques in the hair concept, right? The tug's just always moving and moving and moving, doesn't stop, doesn't get a drink, doesn't talk to anybody, just keeps going. But the other thing is because we call the elevator wirelessly uh, through a Wi-Fi signal, we actually don't have to present ourselves in the elevator lobby and then call the elevator. So that's what people do, right? You push the cart and you push it 100 yards, then you push the button and then you wait, right? What we do is we know where we're going to go. We're on a trip. Uh, we were sent out of, let's say, the kitchen to deliver to the fifth floor. We call the elevator right then. And so by the time we get to the elevator lobby, it's there waiting for us, so we eliminate the wait time. The other thing that we can do, and I can't remember if we do it at UCSF, so I'll, I'll just leave that, that open for now, is we can do dynamic mapping. So you asked about um, you know, changing from ad hoc to schedule a one-off. We can actually do dynamic routing. So if I'm coming out of the kitchen, and let's say there's two different elevators I can take to get to the destination that I've been assigned to, I can actually look in advance, right? I can pull each elevator and say which one's the least busy. Obviously, it's something that people people can't do. So there's a lot that goes on at the elevator. It's a good question. Yeah. So yeah, one la one last sort of vein, sort of similar to what you're talking about on the ROI side. So I mean, hardware's hard, right? For a reason, and why it's software because it's a lot easier. <laughs> but it seems like your operational costs per hospital are are going to have a hard time fitting in the envelope of your low labor cost reduction. So installing to the elevator, trying to map the entire hospital system trying to figure out where each thing is going, your software operational cost, how often they break, send somebody out to fix it. Like you multiply all those up, do you really fit inside of a $15, $20 an hour higher times 60,000 hours, which is still really only a little over a couple million? Sure. It, you know, and again, sometimes it depends on the area of the country. San Francisco, right. I'll be honest, is easy. Right. <laughs> uh, right. New York is easy. You know, Nebraska, maybe not so easy, uh, depending on the department. So if you're looking at, again, uh, to go back to the other question, if you're looking at pharmacy in San Francisco, you can put in one tug and you can still deal with all the overhead putting in. You wouldn't put in five or six elevators. Obviously, you might just do one and you would be able to get a solid ROI. We have, let's say, probably right around 300 hospital customers. And I won't say many, but, but, but several have one or two vehicles. Uh, and, and again, most of the time it would be in pharmacy because that's, that's the way to do it. Right. But yeah. the other thing, to, again, it depends on, on the other planning around it, right? You can put in one tug and again, then you might need the elevator and everything else. And you might only use it four hours a day for whatever reason. And maybe that solves an important problem for you. So I'm not passing judgment on that. Maybe a very important four hour task that it's doing, but that tug is available. So it's not one tug to one person. That tug may also work two and a half shifts, right? So for, it's not really $15 an hour. You might look at it as what it's doing, you know, and, and everybody here on the stage knows this. If I'm, if I'm looking at two FTEs over the course of seven day week, it's probably more like 30 or $40 an hour a day, right? If you're stacking those two FTEs together. So a lot of it does depend on circumstance, but you're absolutely right. If you were to look at trying to put one tug in to handle trash for you know one particular area, you'd probably be hard pressed to get an overall ROI once you pay for the, the software and the installation and everything else. 
These are really great questions. And I think I was just thinking about the one you had asked. I think there are halo effects that we could actually map ROI on. Obviously, there's the personnel cost, but then you're also looking at injury reduction and those costs are enormous. Also looking at halo effects that you brought up was patient and worker satisfaction and then adding other capabilities that we currently can't do. Um, that are just now being tracked. So I think the ROI model, it's important that we track all the variables so it's apples to apples in terms of all the costs. But I think there's some halo benefits that aren't quite captured yet. Absolutely. And I would, I'm sorry, Lindsay, I was going to add to, to an answer or part to your question as well, the halo effect. A lot of times who we're dealing with, a lot of our projects, particularly our bigger projects in Mission Bay was 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 an example of that come at the time of, of building a new hospital. Again, it's not a technology limitation where in a lot of old hospitals, when people build a new hospital, the halo effect of having the high tech, right? And it's a, it's a very visible high tech. So um, I know all the people that I was up here on the Java session, they have really cool technologies and I'm sure they have much you know, bigger and better outcomes than, than the tug w w could have but they're not visible to most people, right? So, you know, the patient's asleep when, when it's going on, right? Hopefully they've got a great outcome afterwards, but, but to people who are coming in and out of the hospital, you don't know, you don't know if you have a striker bed or a hill round bed, right? Most normal people don't. But if you walk into a hospital and you see they're very visible technology. And so it kind of gives this halo that this is a high tech place. Yeah. And I, a I think a lot of the people that we get involved with during the construction, because a lot of times that's where we see the C-suite and there's usually um, program managers of optimization or transformation or titles like that that we get involved. It's with. definitely the high point on a lot of the international health tech tours that I give. And this is where I intersect with, I want to point out Dan Hendroid, who really is the internal champion for the tugs at UCSF, director of food services. But to solve his own problems, he became the titan of tugs there. And um, he is a resource. He's offered his uh, name up to you if you want contact information, please let me know. Um, the last thing I just wanted to ask is it's very, very hard for companies to introduce new technologies into the healthcare system. And I see some people from startups in here. I just wondered if you could um, just make one comment as to what you thought were the, the biggest hurdles or what you thought were the biggest inroads, such as an internal champion. Yeah, not only I guess I would I would take one step back. I think for for startups, it's it's getting a good partner customer, right? Somebody who who shares your vision and understands that it's not you know this is not going to be perfect right out of the gate. Someone who's willing to work with you uh, to help you perfect it. I mean, I, it's there's there are a good number of those within the healthcare world, but um, to to address uh, an issue that uh, the gentleman who was on a little bit earlier, if you don't have an addressable market, <laughs> then you don't really have a great business plan. And it's hard to get a big addressable market in healthcare without having, you know, good partners to start up and having good, good proof of concepts, good proof points. And the challenge in that is obviously the, the cost, right? I mean, we've got to make some, um, you know, some, some, uh, cooperation in terms of how that's going to be paid for. And then there's time. Is how everybody wants to measure the results. So you, can, you have to spend the time to, to get it installed and then actually do all the pre-measuring and then all the post-measuring. But if you're willing to do that, I think that's the right way. And that's, uh, at least in the healthcare world, uh, that's how you address the market. Well, I thank you very much. I want to go back to one quote you had earlier when you said that our robots, robots aren't the kind that impact patients, and we'd like to keep it that way. Yeah. <laughs> well <laughs> thank said. You, thank you so much uh, for the presentation and to the panelists for your insights. And please step up and, and find Peter outside when you get a chance, because I'm sure you have a lot of questions of your own. Thank you for your audience participation. Thanks. Thank you. And that was the end of our second podcast. 
we took a deep dive into the operational challenges of installing automated robots in a hospital. In our next and third podcast, we'll bring you an absolutely inspirational keynote speaker, Dr. Sam DeBroyer, CEO of DocAI, a deep learning computational platform. She'll speak on the role of blockchain in healthcare and gave an absolutely amazing talk. I'm confident you'll love it. We hope you enjoyed listening to these presentations delivered in San Francisco from the DocSF stage in early January 2019. We thank you for joining our journey as we catalyze the adoption of digital health tools in healthcare and use orthopedics as the uniting paradigm. Please become part of our community at docsf.health. We want to work with you to make the future of healthcare present. I am your host, Stefano Bini, on the Digital Orthopedics Podcast from DocSF. Farewell for now.